Hello and welcome to the Dr. Squee Show podcast for this week, taken from my radio show. Some of the music will be trimmed shorter, but if it is played in full, it is with full permission of the artist. Otherwise, it's trimmed for rights reasons. Please enjoy this podcast, and if you want to catch us live, you can catch us on the Bear.Live every Thursday, 8pm till 10pm UK time. For now, please enjoy this week's show. Welcome to the show with your friend and mine. So tell me, Dr. Squee, who's it gonna be this time? We like to hear you talk, and we love to hear you listen. And if you are not subscribed, you won't know what you're missing. So welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Headphones up. Here we go. This is David Osmond from the Firesign Theater. Whenever I'm kind of wandering around the blogs trying to find something really interesting, I go to the bear and I ask the bear to show me the Dr. Squee Show. It's wonderful. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. I'm Dr. Squee and this is my show and we're turning up to 11 tonight. Why are we turning up to 11? I don't know. I just had the phrase in my head so look it came out. That's the wonders of live radio. Guys we've got an amazing show for you tonight. Ashlyn Yenny from the uh, Human Centipede as well as her new film Antidote is with us later on in the show and look hey I know there's some people who might have some very strong feelings about that film, but look, isn't that what art's meant to do? It's meant to get you thinking. Some people love it, some people have some different views, but Ashlyn was lovely. You're just going to absolutely love that interview. And then later on in the show, we've got Simon Harding from the Eurovision show. Now, the Eurovision show is one of our uh, fellow radio shows here on the Live every Saturday at 6pm till 7pm. And he talked to me all about his love of Eurovision, how he got into the contest himself contests past as well as this year's contest which is happening just this weekend as we record uh, if you listen back to this on repeat or on uh, on podcast it might have already happened i don't know look i don't know when you're listening what do you want from me guys but look it's um it's been an interesting week for me i was hoping to be broadcasting tonight from my new computer a new beast of a pc arrived it's absolutely amazing um works like thunder but the one thing is, I haven't managed to download all my music to it, uh, which has taken a little while. So it's in progress at the moment. It arrived earlier this week. I just haven't had a moment uh, spare. But it is literally, as we speak, downloading from the laptop I'm currently recording on onto the new machine. So for next week, we've already broadcast using uh, the new the new uh, computer. I did a an interview. Well, I was due to do an interview. I've had not good luck with people turning up for interviews recently. Um, Ashley Nyeni, who we hear from later, uh, was a rescheduled interview, and I was also due earlier this week to speak to Trevor Locke, amazing comedian, and he's going to be joining us next week now, but I was due to speak to him, so I went live on the stream, because if you don't go live on the stream, as I mentioned before, Facebook cuts you off, and I broadcast to Facebook along with other places, and uh, yes, I just started speaking to the stream seeing as uh, Trevor wasn't there and he didn't arrive so uh, just spoke for 10 minutes don't worry you will not be subjected to hearing that tonight however 
I looked and listened back to that and the audio and the visuals on it uh, were amazing. Obviously, we're on radio here, so we deal with the audio. But next week, the audio should be crisper than ever on the Dr. Squee show. And uh, I can't wait to, to bring that to you. But I digress. Look, uh, on to this week's show. Before we get into things, actually, yeah, I'm going to do a little bit of a uh, story about my week. I don't do this very often, but it's been one of those weeks. Earlier on the week, I was tapping away as I do during my day job. I work for the NHS, working from home. I'm a team leader, and I'm in the middle of just writing a a message on Teams to go across to someone. And suddenly, my laptop powers down. Like midway through typing, it's just no dramatic, just shuts down. I'm like, okay, restart, restart, power button. Come on, why, why aren't we working here? Nothing. It is uh, it just dead as a doornail. So I contact work and they say, oh, okay, um, just contact the IT department. So I contact IT and they say, right, got it. You need to arrange a courier to pick it up and go, um, who's going to pay for said courier? Like, you know, not bad wages, but, you know, I'd, I'd rather work paid for work stuff to be picked up. They go, no, no, you see, you book it and then you arrange with your team leader or your manager to to get that sorted out uh, to be reimbursed so I'm like okay right okay so I dutifully book it I send a message to my uh, manager who says oh I'll contact my manager and find out what the process is for that so I book it in and um, I don't have a printer at home so the only option is to take it to a shop about half an hour bus and walk away from here uh, combined and half an hour back so like an hour taken out of my day plus whatever time it takes me in the shop so I go along there get the bus, follow my Google Maps to the right shop, uh, go in there, and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we don't print things here. We, we just take in the DHL parcels. It's like, what is the point? Like, if, if I didn't want to print it out, it's a quid extra to get it picked up from your door and print the label yourself. Like, if, if I had the ability to print the label myself, would I bother for an extra quid to go down to the shop? But no, I'm there in the shop, so I have to get the bus back. I get back. I order a thing online to uh, do it, so print your own label, send a message to, to my beloved Nicola, my lady, and I say, would you mind uh, printing this out um, at a friend's house? Not at work, obviously, because we would never do that. So, um, yeah, so Nicola, dutifully messaged back, yeah, that's fine, absolutely great. So um, I order that, and then I get a message from my manager's manager going, no, why would you ever book your inquiry? Don't do that. Make sure, you know, like, don't worry, I will arrange for someone to pick it up and, and collect it from you and take it magically away and provide you with a replacement laptop. We won't wait for it to be repaired. And, and I, I've even missed a wrinkle away from the story as it was because um, because of the advice I got given about it being sent back. Before I got advice to send it back, they said, oh, OK, well, what you need to do is contact Dell. And a guy from Dell will come around, they'll come to your house because it's still under warranty and they'll fix it. So that was actually the first step. And it was Dave from Dell, which was very pleasing, of course. We love a bit of alliteration here. Dave from Dell comes to uh, have a look at the machine. He pokes around a little bit, goes, oh, yeah, no, that isn't working. I'll tell you what, need to replace the motherboard. Tears out the motherboard, puts a new one in, connects that up. Yeah, still not working. There's a bit more explanation, like uh, takes out a few wires, puts a few new, new ones in, managed to get it working. I have to then phone work and get a key, which is like just a million letters and numbers long, which I have to type in. It then starts turning over. 
and uh, so I'm thinking, oh yeah, good, it's going to start up. Goes to blue screen of death. So uh, the guy from IT then says, I've got to get it carried back because he's saying, um, oh yeah, yeah, because it needs reconditioning. So it's very much a circuitous route. I spent all this time wasted, not only of my time, but Dave from Dell's time. That's the person I most feel sorry for. Poor Dave from Dell. He deliberated dutifully upon this uh, desktop device. And for Dilly, Dilly Squat, that's what he did it for. <laughs> so, all this said, I've now got at my feet right now, in a box, ready to go, this laptop, uh, ready for a new one to be delivered tomorrow, and that one to be picked up. What a bloody fast just for a broken laptop. So that's that's my week. It's been pretty much IT all around. First of all, trying to set up my new machine. Then I'm trying to uh, survive and work out. Oh my God, it's so painful. Because I got get this laptop provided by work. And uh, yeah, I get that because I'm a team leader. You know, we get a bit spoiled because we've got to access certain things. We've got to have two screens. In the meantime, while I'm setting up my new computer, because I need two screens, and uh, obviously with a new computer, I've only got one, I had to set up my old laptop. So um, between my laptop, I've been doing kind of my normal work. And then any Teams meeting I had to do on my tablet because my old laptop doesn't like Teams. And I'm fartassing around about three different devices. Like I have to go to my phone because my tablet then runs out of battery. It's just been absolutely crazy this week. I, I And the other thing which kind of like really occurred to me was my laptop, like which is in front of me, I, I'm broadcasting on right now. I'm, I'm giving a little stroke because, you know, I've got some sentimental value to this. I remember when I first got this laptop. It's this lovely like red laptop from Lenovo. Uh, it's kind of like flexes up so you can turn it around to use it in tablet mode. And it's, it's a lovely little machine, actually. And I remember when I first got it, but prior to that, I had this big clunky laptop, which kind of weighed a ton. It would heat up your balls for you when it was out on your lap. You know, oh God, you sit on your lap for too long. God, your, your legs will go to sleep. That's kind of the girth it was. Um, and just like, I remember when I got that, and that was the brand new pretty thing. But then kind of it gets to the end of the life. It starts clunking away. It doesn't do what you need it to anymore. And then I got in the red laptop, the, the wonder machine that it was. And now we got to the point where that's useless. And I don't know what my point is here, but it's just uh, the cycle of laptop, I guess. Now my kind of uh, desktop unit is is now my uh, beauty. And this poor red machine goes to the great uh, laptop bay in the sky. It doesn't really. We're just going to use it for other shit. But, but that's not the point. Now I have Dream Machine ready to stream, to audio, to anything we need to for weeks to come. So um, that's my little IT update for this week. But let's kick on with this week's show proper. We've got some from the Eurovision show coming up a bit later. Before that, we've got Ashley Yenny talking about the Human Centipede, her new movie, and so, and so much more. But let's kick things off with Angel of the Morning. I heard this on the Blacklist the other day, the wonderful TV show, and it's just been in my head ever since, so... Uh, Please enjoy this. Merrily Rush and the Turnabouts. What a fantastic tune and what a wonderful way to kick off the show. 
Another fantastic way of kicking off the show is with our first interview tonight. Yes, we've got two. Later on, we'll be speaking to Simon from the Eurovision show, speaking all things Eurovision as it's coming up this weekend. But first of all, uh, I speak to Ashleen Yenny. And uh, me and Ashleen were due to speak last week, but it got delayed. Um, and this is the rescheduled. As you join the conversation, uh, Ashleen was running a bit late. This time I thought I'd been stood up twice, but no. She was there. Uh, she's a fantastic horror actress. You're going to hear all about it. But this is Ashley joining the conversation as I was talking to the audience um, just off of the top of my hat. So um, here's over to that interview now. Enjoy. Hello, Ashlyn. How are you? Hi. I, was, I had to go live so the link didn't expire. So I was just having a little chat to the audience while we were waiting. Okay. I love it. I love it. I love it. Sorry. I was, um, I have a two and a half year old, so I was getting her situated with a little movie so i could come and talk to you where am i at? there we go how's your little one doing she's good she's um you know she's a typical two and a half year old so it's good it's good <laughs> we'll assume that's a good thing i think yeah. it is some days <laughs> all right where are you located i'm here in southampton in the uk wait what time is it there it is currently at six o'clock, so it, it it it's not so bad that I'm uh, having a cider. You're having a beer, and I'm having, you know, coffee. <laughs> yeah, I think we're both being appropriate to our time zone. So you're at yes. ten o'clock there. Yeah, it's ten. Yeah. Um, I'm just having a little trouble hearing you. Can you turn your volume up at all? Just yeah, I can also put in the headphones. Sorry, I'm using my phone. Oh, I'm so sorry. That'd be brilliant. Yeah, here I'll put it. Is this better? Oh, that's better. I can hear you now. Okay, awesome. So how's everything in America? How are you all coping with the pandemic uh, this week? Um, you know, it's it's actually been quite great because a lot of people have been getting their vaccinations. And so things are opening back up. More and more things are getting back to somewhat normal life. And um, yeah, so I'm I'm happy. I can go outside without a mask on, you know. I could never get a mask on my daughter. So I was really hoping we were going to get past that point, you know, very quickly because uh, I had to fly a couple of times with her. And um, it was, I was just so scared. I was going to get like stopped by the stewardess, you know, or like, you know, told like, hey, you can't fly because she's not wearing a mask, blah, blah, blah. But it's all good. So, yeah. So what's the age limit on masks? Because I thought like, I thought it was under fives. Two. On flights, it's two. Wow, that's harsh. Yeah, and I'm like, she's not going to put a mask on. <laughs> like, no. I don't know how to tell her either, you know? It's like, I don't know how to explain to her, like, honey, you need to wear a mask. Like, it's not going to happen, you know? So Who knew two and a half year olds wouldn't understand pandemics? I know. She's like, wait, what? I mean, to her, life really wasn't that much different. She was like, oh, mom and dad just stay at home all day now, and I get undivided attention. Cool. Love it. Fantastic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? So. Meanwhile, you're going, it's like, yes, some work might be nice, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh, my God, we're dying. And you haven't played with another child. That's weird. You know? But she's an only child, yeah. so she, did, she didn't notice. You know, she didn't really notice that it was different because she was so young. Now... On the flip side, my niece, who's five, had a really, really rough time with it. You know, she, the, I, I, the, the effect that it had on adults was really scary, but I'm, I'm curious to see how the long-term effect is going to be on children yeah. because so many of them, you know, like their first 
you know, introduction to school was online. And then suddenly they're like, oh no, you actually go and sit in a classroom now. And, you know, you have other people and they're like, wait, what? I, I don't get to just sit in my room and like look at my tablet. You know, it's like, it's so different. So I'm just curious to see what the long-term effects are going to be. You see, the good thing is though, their kids, like they don't know that that doesn't usually happen, that you spend the yeah. first two years at home and then you... Yeah, they don't, they don't get it. They're just like, okay, you know, so it, it, it all, for her sake, it worked out. But if she was a bit older, I think it would have been a little bit, it would have been a stickier situation, but yeah. So how about for you then? So like, uh, uh, we will get onto the acting of it all and everything. I find it fascinating that you're dealing with two kind of parallel things there. So you obviously get to spend the, um, the youth of your child with her so much, which must be absolutely wonderful. But at the same time, you're dealing with the fact that your industry is in absolute peril. Like it's really yeah. so much more difficult for actors to get jobs. What's your kind of overall feeling with all those kind of mixed emotions going on? You know, <sighs> It is, I think our industry did a really, really good job with dealing with the pandemic because I, when everything happened last year, you know, I was like, oh, I'm not going to work at all this year in 2020. I was like, there's no way I'm going to be working. And then I ended up filming three movies back to back and they were all later in the year. They were all in the fall and winter months, but um, because you know, uh, SAG and just the motion picture industry put so much, you know, really great guidelines in place so that we could go back to work safely. Um, I was really thankful for that because I mean, otherwise we would have nothing going on. There was, and, and I mean, it was very like the audition process is still super, super weird. It was funny. Actually yesterday I had my first, um, zoom callback. And yeah. I hadn't had one yet. You know, I hadn't had that experience yet, even though many people have had that experience last year, I hadn't had it yet. So I had an audition, I had to do a self tape, which that's just the norm. Now you have to do a self tape, yeah. which that's been an industry standard for a, a while now. But, um, and then I had a zoom callback and I was telling my husband, I was like, you know, what's so crazy is a callback can be a very cold room for you to walk into. Like nobody says hi, nobody's very warm. And a Zoom callback, I was like, I wonder what that's going to be like. Just as cold, by the way, just as cold. <laughs> they don't make any allowances for the nobody talks to you. Like, like they they check you in. Like cast director's like, hi, slate your name, and you're like, oh hi. And literally, you're the only thing on the screen, so you're only seeing you. And then you're trying not to look at you. You're trying to. <laughs> you oh know you're like God. it's and you're using your computer and so you're like big and then you're just like and then the director's like talking to you but you can't make eye contact with anyone so you're like do I look in the camera do I look wait where do I look where do I look and so it's um super weird but on the flip side of it I'm grateful and I'm thankful that you know again our industry has stepped up and had really great safety protocols put in place so that we could get back to work safely yeah. um I did do one of the first movie I did do last year. We got shut down our third day of filming because the guy playing my husband tested positive for COVID. And we had went through like test after test after test just to get started on production. And then he it was a, what was it? A false positive? Is that what it's called? So he actually didn't have it, but it shut us down for a week and a half, which costs production like a ton of money and like all of these things. And, you know, COVID, you know, the supervisors that are on set do a really, really great job keeping everyone social distanced and all that stuff. But 
it's still it's still trippy and i'm so excited to just get back to like normal regular human interaction <laughs> yeah yeah because it's like i i don't know which is worse at this stage because you know we've I, i've got kind of several friends in the acting industry and i know yeah. kind of how intimidating is when you've got just three faces just staring at you blankly while you audition yourself facing back at you i think might actually be worse so weird. it's so bizarre and also you're trying not to look at yourself it's so weird because you're like wait ah and then you're like but and then it was it was very uh and then and then one of the directors funny enough the <laughs> if i booked this job it's gonna come back to haunt me but when the director goes can you sit down like in the thing and i was like i have it all set up so i'm standing because i'm standing most of the time and i was like i have to redo like my entire like I don't have a studio. It's not like this is a camera. Like I literally have to take the books that I've stacked up and like, you know, I was like, this is not gonna work. I was like, no, I'm sorry. I was like, I'm pretend I'm sitting. You Did know? you do the books like in the background to look as if yes. it's gonna yeah, yeah. 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 I was like, this That's is standard crazy. Now. I was like, um, I can't no. I was like, I'm sorry. I was like, if I move an inch either way, like you're gonna see my daughter's toys, you know? Just yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's really funny you should say that because um, I've just recently brought a new webcam and the last one was uh, just very tight on me so you can see anything yeah. in the background. We moved a few months ago, just haven't got around to putting anything on the walls. I suddenly got the new webcam, set it up, and I realized you could see all this blank wall. And yeah. like you, if, if you steer it, either way, you're seeing junk in the corners. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I very I quickly like, set dressed this. Like right now, if I move, either way, you're going to see like a box of you know, like you're going to see printer paper and this is an office right now. <laughs> and then you're going to see like a box of industrial size box of uh, masks from Costco. <laughs> so I'm like, it's just like, you're going to get a real glimpse into my life. So, yeah. Well, talking about getting a glimpse into your life, I can do cheesy segues. Uh, let's <laughs> go back to where did it all kind of start for you getting into acting? Oh goodness. Um, you know, I, I'm originally from a really, really small town in Wyoming and there's not a lot um, to do artistically there. And I was always interested in acting. I think I, my mom has a very funny story. I did my first play when I was four, I was in preschool and I memorized like 26 pages. And my mom was like, wow, this child has an amazing memory. And I think that's kind of what started it. Cause I was like, oh, I'm really good at memorizing. Like I should just continue doing this. And so I continued to always be in school plays. I was really active in local theater. And then it wasn't until I was in high school that I was like, I think I really want to make a career out of being an actor. I came out to LA when I was 18 and I was like, eh, I don't know if I'm ready for LA yet. Cause it just seemed, I, I, I just wasn't ready for it. I didn't like the vibe. And I was like, you know what? I think I need to study. So I went to New York and I lived in New York for almost six years. And I studied at a film conservatory there. I got the best training and I really just took my craft very seriously. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was then right after I graduated my conservatory, I booked my first feature film, which was the human centipede. And that, yeah. 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 Can we just take a pause there? That's your first big feature film is the human it was my first centipede. job ever. What yeah, a thing was... to go into. I mean, uh, yeah, I just like the whole, no matter what anyone says about it, good or bad, either way, it is genuinely one of the most shocking films of our lifetime. Like that kind of, I think that's a certain amazing thing in a world where people talk about shocking. This yeah. was genuinely shocking. And I think that's what art should do. You know, even if people don't like it, I think they should appreciate what it was for that. 
Um, yeah. What was it like that being your first, like reading that script and that being your first gig? It was so crazy. I think about it now. Some people have asked me, they're like, would you still do that movie? I'm like, now at 36? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, no way. Um, but I was 22. You know, I, I went in for the audition and it was super, there was no script. It was just a synopsis of what Dr. Hyder was going to do to these, you know, three people. Mm. And I was like, this is so trippy. At first I was like, this isn't a real movie. And I kept asking the director. I, I, the director wasn't even there. I kept asking the producer. I was like, what is this? Can I ask one question there? Sorry, yeah. just because you said you got the synopsis, not the full script. Does yeah. it sound more or less weird in a synopsis? I think the script might at least give it some texture, but just synopsis. By the way, three people sign together. What do you think? Yeah, no, it was it was so weird. And that's the thing. I was like, this isn't real. But funny, a little side note about the human centipede is that there wasn't an actual like script. What it was, I think I have it somewhere, but... I saved it. It's, um, you're supposed to give it back, but I kept it. Uh, it's like a, it was like a, a, like very small pamphlet and it was just pages. And on each page was a synopsis of what that scene was going to be about. Yeah. And that was it. There wasn't an actual working script. So for me, it was a very, very, very bizarre first film to do because I was like, wait, there's no script. Okay. So we're just going to improv all this shit. I mean, I don't talk a lot in the movie so it worked out but um it was such a weird trippy experience that being my first movie also because i didn't know anything about horror films i didn't know anything about the horror genre really i mean i'm a i'm a fan of horror movies to an extent or i was but i was mm -hmm. i didn't know i wasn't a big buff you know like it wasn't a big movie buff about horror films i didn't i didn't really know that horror industry that well so i got thrown into it and it was super cool to be just completely welcomed with open arms to this amazing community of artists and people. And, um, you know, the human centipede became what it did. And I, I didn't know it was going to become what it did. I don't think the other actors did either. Um, but the director, he always knew. He was like, no, you guys watch. You guys watch. Because I remember making fun of the name when I was on set. I mean, again, I was 22. Like, I was like, you're really going to call it the human centipede? <laughs> you know? Which fair comment. <laughs> yeah, because I was like, it's such a weird, like, what? You know? And um, and uh, it was such a crazy, you know, couple of years of my life. Because then I started doing the horror conventions and traveling and meeting all these, like, you know, again, being thrown into that scream queen category. And it really set the tone for the next like five, six years of my career. Um, again, because that was the first thing I did. So people were like, oh, she's just like really in, like she can do really shocking things. And I was like, actually, I really want to do like a romantic comedy. You know, <laughs> it was like, it was, like I mean, so weird. I, yeah. Just to break it down a few, few of the things you brought up there. So the director, what was he like? What was kind of like... I just want to get into the mind of someone who thinks of something so wonderfully bizarre as this. Tom, I mean, if you ever get the chance to talk to him, he's just like delightfully sick is, you know, how I can describe him. It's like he's got this crazy sick sense of humor and he's like, he finds like, you know, the most grotesque, horrible, horrific things in life and he wants to exploit them, you know? And, um, so his, you know, the reasoning behind he, the human centipede and why he like came up with the idea was, I think he had read something about like some um, 
weird people doing like you know weird things with children and he was like you know what they should that that guy should his face should be sewn to the ass of a fat trucker is what he said or something like that and then he was like oh that's actually a really fun idea i want to go off on that and then he just like created the human centipede so it, he's a really delightful guy. He's a great director. It was really fun working with him. I worked with him twice because I worked with him on the first one and the second one. And, you know, it was just, uh, he's, he's yeah. trippy. Oh, sorry. And he's, uh, he's just got, you know, he's got his own style and, um, yeah, he's shocking to, you know, he's a shock. He likes to shock. He likes to shock and awe, you know? And I think he, he did that successfully. Um, with the human centipede and you know it'll Sammy forever yeah yeah it'll, it'll forever be like you know attached to me um no pun intended uh he it was uh, you know because i i did that movie it was my first movie and <laughs> for a few years i tried to shy away from talking about it i was like oh, i don't want to talk about it blah blah, blah. but at a certain point i was just like you know you kind of just own everything that you you do and i was just like you know i'm really proud of that being yes. you know like I got to make history with a bunch of people that we didn't know. I, I didn't know that was going to happen. And um, so it's like, it's cool to be a part of something like that. Something that became so big. I'll never do another movie like that. I'll never do something that becomes like that. Like, I don't think I'll ever be attached to another project that becomes what the human centipede did. Just don't think it's going to happen. If it does, you know, lightning strikes twice sometimes, yeah. but uh, for yeah yeah i don't know we'll see what happens but yeah so yeah and uh <laughs> something which i was i don't want to kind of go gross out on it at all that's not my kind of remit but like i i'm kind of fascinated by how you go about filming that as well because there's in an age where we uh more so since the human centipede but we're very careful about how we kind yeah. of treat actors how was it setting up some of those scenes shall i put you it know, that way they were really really respectful um again mm. because it was my first movie i didn't have anything to gauge it off of but you know as far as like being in the centipede formation it's all fake so you know the other yeah. two actors like they wore they got butt casts so they got their butts made into <laughs> like a fake mold <laughs> i know the things we do as actors um and it sounds was like fake. so much fun to be honest i know and then they had a they had a bite in the middle of it that we would like you know it kind of looked like almost like a pacifier you know that you would put on like a kid in a right. kid's mouth you know and it was like a bite that we bit down on and then a piece of gauze went around your head and then you know they would put that over them you know in when we were on all fours and then you were just like right there but you know there's so many layers between you and the other person like there was a lot of layers because there's like the latex, the fake butt, like all the things that she's wearing, you know, and all the things that he's wearing. And so you're just kind of like, you know, and then we didn't, we didn't film more than like a few minutes at a time in that formation. Tom moved very, very fast. So when we did it, he was like, got it, move on. Like, that was it. Like the longest I think we were in that formation was like going up the staircase, <laughs> which was like tricky because we're trying to all maneuver, you know? But it was really, you know, yeah, it wasn't bad. I, I know it sounds, it sounds so crazy to say that, but it really wasn't bad. It was like, okay, it was weird, of course, because you're like, what are we doing? But, you know, you do a lot of weird shit in movies sometimes. And 
I've had weirder experiences in a sex scene than I have filming Human Centipede. You know, it's like, it's like, to be truthful, you know? So, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sounds like you certainly got your workout during that film. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, it was, uh, it was, but that type of, see, and this is what I've told people. It's like that movie, doing that movie set me up to be able to do other movies that I've done, including Antidote that just came out. Um, because, yes, you know, you, when you sign on to do an independent horror, you kind of have to know what you're you're getting into. You know, it's not sometimes it's not going to be super comfortable or cushy and it's not like television where they move super fast and you have a chair and you have a trailer and all of these things and like nine people are taking care of you. You know, it's really it's a, and it's a lot of internal work that you're doing to be in these horror movies and to play these characters and to play them truthfully. And it's a really cool thing to be able to work in this genre. I love it because you get to play the whole spectrum as an actor. You know, I get to be I get to be all of these wonderful things and then I get to be fearful and scared and then die and you know, I get to play all these like crazy great emotions and so, you know, I'm really thankful that, you know, I did do the human centipede because it did prepare me for a lot of my future work. So, yeah, I mean, it seems like I think an independent film is great preparation for any kind of film going ahead because you have to, like you, know, you were saying about, you know, you have to get the scene, you have to get it right first time because there isn't so much money to, to do a lot more to reshoots. You mm -hmm. have to move very fast. You have to kind of be hot on your marks. So that prepares you for when you've kind of got like a big screen movie, which is like a hundred takes per everything. You're kind of like, that That would be easy for you by then. Oh my God, I cannot wait. When I hear about people and they're like, oh yeah, we shot over like three and a half, four months. I'm like, I am so jealous. <laughs> I'm like, I, like the longest shoot I've ever done is like two. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't imagine having like a whole day to do just one scene. That sounds bonkers to me, bonkers. And I'm like, wow, that's so cool. I cannot wait to start doing those projects, you know, <laughs> because I do stuff where it's like, you know, including this movie, like an antidote, for instance, yeah. um, you know, there's a lot of practical effects in it. And the director, Peter, wanted that. But the thing with practical effects is once you spill blood, you have to hope that everything goes correct. And it, it's like, you know, blood, it's like water, you know, you don't know where the fuck it's gonna go. And so it, sometimes the gag doesn't stay, you know, like, it doesn't come out right away so i'm like choking but nothing's happening <laughs> it's like it's like i'm, I'm feeling like my neck's gonna go at any minute <laughs> i know i know and like for instance like in the movie there's a girl that slices her throat open and to reset that scene because it's blood sprayed there it takes like four or five hours to reset her to reset the wall to reset the entire scene and so you don't get a lot of takes to do you don't get a lot of time to do that you get like one two maybe if you're lucky you get three times but normally you do it on the first take and everything has to work perfectly and you just pray to the like the sfx gods that everything works you know but um yeah so you, yeah i don't know just rambling. I, I have <laughs> loads of questions about Antidote. We did watch it the other night. Absolutely loved it. We will get onto that in just a minute. I do just want to ask though, because again, Human Centipede is fascinating. I think the amount of things it did, one of the most successful films ever for the amount of budget versus return. It's amazing. But I want to know for you as well, 
Like you've just done this, it's your first job. And even though the director's been saying, oh, this will be a surefire success, it's gonna do wonders. When it came out, how was it living through that reaction, like both personally and generally for the movie? And did you get any real kind of shockers coming to you? Yeah, it was so, you know, it's like, it's with horror films, it's either, I mean, not all horror films, but, or not all, some films are like this too, but some people either love it or you hate it. And so I got super mixed reactions for being in it. I got told, oh, you're so cool. That's such a cool thing. You were in that movie. And then I got like, you are the most horrible, disgusting actress. I can't believe you were in that movie. I don't respect you at all. And I lost respect from some people. And then I gained a lot of like, you know, credit from other people who were like, this is cool. And so it was a really interesting thing because I moved from New York to LA because of that movie, because I always said if I was going to move to LA, I wanted something to go off of. And I didn't just want to move to LA, you know, like the 10,000 other actors who move here every single year. And I wanted to have some sort of credit. And so I had the human centipede. And I remember taking meetings with agents. And I distinctly remember this one agency, I had to sit you know, in a boardroom with a group of agents and they all have to agree on you, even though only one of them really represents you. All the agents have to select you. And there was this older woman who, it was just not her cup of tea. She just was like, I don't understand this movie. It's not like, and she's very honest with me about it. And yeah. I, I was so young at the time and I just, I kind of clammed up and I didn't really know how to respond to her. And now if I were to go in that room, I would know exactly what to say. But at the time, my manager looked at me and goes, do not sell yourself to her, like in the room. And I was like, so I just turned to her and I said, I understand you don't like the movie, but this is the only thing I've done. So it's the only thing I have to talk about. And I'm hoping that if you guys work with me, I can get more work. Well, I didn't get signed with that agency, <laughs> so they did not take me. Um, but I did find, you know, people who did want to represent me and did want to take a kind of a risk and let me be seen, you know, for other jobs. And I had a really great agent for a few years who she was wonderful. And, you know, you, it, it was, it was good and bad is what I, I guess my point is, is there yeah. were good parts. And then there were really, really bad parts where, you know, I had to dig myself out of quite a few holes because people just wanted to peg me into this, you know, and that's the thing about the human centipede is like, it was my first movie. It's not like I had a ton of experience or a ton of, you know, life experience to use either. So as I've gotten older and had more experience and done more projects, I think my, my acting has well 1% improved, but also just my, you know, dealing with how a movie comes out afterwards and dealing with the aftermath of if it's good or bad and if people like it or they don't like it, you know, and not take so much to heart because when you're young and you're getting told, you know, there's some horrible things being written about you, you get really sad and it can affect you. And now you just brush it off and you're like, okay, move on to the next project. You know, something else will come along the way, but those are life lessons you have to learn. So. I mean, it may just be the hippie in me, but I just feel like uh, anyone who gets that movie gets art. Like, you know, again, it's not about liking no. or disliking it, but getting what it is and what it did 
I, I, I don't see how you don't get how that's such a big movie. And I bet you that woman who uh, was so po-faced against it, I bet she has not had anyone in her office, perhaps ever, who's uh, permeated the culture through their, their debut, no. certainly. No, ever. I don't think so either. But, yeah. But yeah, yeah I mean, that's, um, the, that's what you have to take, the good and the bad. And then there were times when I would go into a casting and I had one specific casting director and she's a very well-known casting director and she loved the movie she was such a huge fan of it to the point where I actually brought her in a copy because I was like here you go <laughs> like everybody signed it for you and all she wanted to do was talk about it and then I was like can we work please like I'm here to audition for you for a different thing like I would like to you know work on something else you know but all she wanted to do was chat about it and then that became like an issue because I was like okay <laughs> like and I, I, so I always gave people time. I was like, yeah, let's chat, you know, but like, also I want to do my audition, you know? So it was, yeah. uh, it was funny. And, and I will stick to that role as well. Oh, no, no, this, we I'm not about... doing this part. No, 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 no please. <laughs> <laughs> but um, something I did want to ask about before we get on to uh, Antidote, which, which we're of course here to mainly talk about today. So uh, True Blood, you popped up in as Lady Courtesan. Now, I'm actually not actually in the episode. I got cut out, but um, ah. it's, yeah, I know. But I will tell you, working on a show like, I've worked on a couple TV shows, working on a show like True Blood, working on a show like NCIS, um, those shows have been around for a really long time. Mm -hmm. They work like clockwork. They are just like, you step onto those sets and just, one, everybody loves their job because they've been doing it for years and years and years. They have a hit show, so they love the what they're doing, you know, and that just makes you like excited to be there. And um, I was in a scene with Alexander Skarsgård and he is one of the tallest actors, but also the nicest human beings. Mm. Like I'm talking unbelievably nice like so nice to the point where we were like like he had his own chair and like his own space and you know he has a stand-in and all or double even you know and all this stuff and he was hanging out with us like the day players he was like hey guys just wanted to chat like and I was like who are you like you're so famous and like fantastic but wonderful and so I always and same thing when I worked on NCIS it was the same exact experience uh, Michael Weatherly was just like so wonderful and I was just like you know that makes you as an actor you're like I hope to always be just like that just as kind and just as engaging with people that come on to work one or two days on your show you know but uh yeah those those types of shows when you get to work on them you're it's just it's that's the cushy job that's the job that's not like the indie horror <laughs> and know? also like it, that seems to me very much it links back to what we were saying before like if you've worked in indie cinema mm -hmm. you're really prepared for those fast-paced environments so with tv now especially with the production values the money which is pumped into tv they're doing a movie they're making every week essentially that yeah. that's what we're, we're dealing with at this stage and so they've got to move incredibly fast. They don't get the reshoots the movie do the, the movies do. Yeah. But they've yeah. got to now present the same level of quality as a movie and just do that 24 times over sometimes or 13 episodes if it's like one of the new style series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So I think like you were perfectly placed because you done indie cinema first. Yeah. And so I was used to, I'm, I mean, I'm used to only getting like one or two takes on most things. And so when, you know, I don't scoff at when they're like, got it done. I'm like, good, moving on. Let's go. You know, if everybody's happy, let's work. But yeah, when you work in TV too, they have so much, like there's so many people behind the scenes. Like there's, I mean, I personally had my own hairstylist and two makeup artists personally just myself on true blood and they were behind me the entire like making sure because i had i was i was playing a woman and it was set in uh during like the black plague i think it was like 1700s and so i had a very specific hairdo and i had very specific makeup and very like i had this insane dress corset thing oh yeah i had two people dressing me like <laughs> the amount of attention you get <laughs> like it's just <laughs> bananas and I was like this is so cool and then you know but when you do you know a human centipede movie you're on your own and they're like hey strap it in you know let's go and you're just like okay let's go here's a tub of makeup go (laughs) yeah go ahead or uh, no makeup at all they're like can you look more sick you know like you don't want to do any you know (laughs) so it's just it, it the the this business is so fun and it's so creative and so interesting and it takes so many different types of artists to work in it and you just you really appreciate every job you get and they're all so totally different and you know you just you're along for the ride whatever you you know lock in to do you're just like all right this is what I'm doing let's do it you know so let's get on to uh, antidote uh, I want you to describe the plot because I find it hard without giving anything away I do too. Great and yeah. twisted film. So give your little uh, synopsis you'd give out. You know, it's super, I agree with you. I've been asked this question a couple of times lately and I always just, um, you know, digress to what the director says and he calls it a morality tale, <laughs> which I'm like, okay, Peter, like it's a morality tale. Um, so Antidote is seemingly, it's about a woman who goes in for emergency surgery wakes up in a completely different hospital that in itself is already so scary that in itself is one of like every human being's worst fears the scariest part sometimes of surgery yes the surgery is scary but being put under is super terrifying because it's like one is it going to work or am i going to be comatose but feel everything like that's one of my fears (laughs) that i'm going to be like comatose but yet feel everything and um And then, you know, how you're going to wake up, how you're going to react from that. Uh, So she wakes up in a completely different hospital, not knowing why she's there, not understanding why she's there, gets no clues from the doctor who she meets. So she goes on this discovery, and along the way, she discovers why she's there, why the other patients are there. And they all have, you know dicey past lives and what you discover it's really a story about is is there anything is there such thing as true redemption and what if you had to pay the price for something you did in your life that you're not super proud of or a very you know kind of bad situation you got put in what if that affected the rest of your eternity like so Anyways, that kind of gives it away a little bit, but it's hard not to give, it's just hard not to. I I think what's really nice about it is that uh, you feel like without being kind of 
teasing it out too much because that can get frustrating in a movie because you've got so many characters with so many shady pasts you're getting a little bit about everything everyone on the way and you know your character they've definitely got something in the past there's definitely going to be something coming out but they kind of really tease out until that happens and i thought that was just so wonderfully done um what kind of really uh, struck out to you in the script when you first read it well this is the craziest part sorry i'm gonna turn off the baby monitor um Oh, I thought you baby. said something you weren't meant to, and it was like your spoiler alert. <laughs> no, I'm just silencing a baby monitor. Um, so uh, um, this is what's super, super crazy about this story. And this goes back to just being prepared for doing whatever is. Um, so I it was late September 2019, and I get this Instagram message from Lucas Patassi, who's the DP of Antidote. And I had worked with Lucas earlier in the year on a short film. And he sends me this message and says, hey, what's your month of October look like? And I was like, what? I was like, what are you talking about? That's like, it's so cryptic. I was like, I don't know. I'm, I'm around. And then he was like, okay, cool. I'm going to send you a script. That's all he said. Didn't tell me the title. Didn't tell me a synopsis. Didn't tell me anything. Literally just sent the script over didn't even tell me what I was supposed to be reading, looking at. So I read the script that night. It was like 11 p.m. And of course, like, I'm like, oh, new script. And so I start going through it. I'm reading it. I read the whole script and I'm like, whoa. And I write him back and I go, wow, whoever's playing Sharon has like her plate full. <laughs> and he goes, okay, cool. So you're down. And I was like, what? I was like, what is he talking about? And then I love, I'm, I'm very good friends with him. And I was like, what is he talking about? It's so weird. And so then he goes, um, we start filming on Monday. Remember, this is Thursday night, I think. It, yeah, it was Thursday night. Thursday night. He goes, we start filming on Monday. Our lead actress just dropped out. And we are set. Like, the whole cast is set. Locations yeah. are set, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, my God. And he goes, the director knows who you are. You were on his short list anyways, but he had hired a name actress, a girl that's, you know, on TV and she's, you know, you always want to get your biggest bang for your buck, right? Yeah. And so I was like, wait, what? And he goes, the director, I told, the, we were like thinking of actresses and I brought your name up and said, I know her personally. And the director was like, can you reach out to her? He goes, I'm going to set you up with a, you know, a phone conversation. So I, <laughs> so I, uh, call Peter the next day. It was Friday. I have this phone conversation with Peter and Alexi, the other producer, and they offer me the role. And I was like, oh my God, this is such a huge, huge project to take on with like zero prep time. But October of 2018 is when I had my daughter. So this was October of 2019. And so it'd been one year, I hadn't really done anything like a real meaty project. I'd done like a TV movie and some commercials and blah, blah, blah. So I was like really itchy to like get into like something really cool. And I was like, yeah, I'm so down, let's do it. So I locked arms with them to then shoot for like the next 35 days, which then turned into a longer shoot. But I then had to tell my husband, by the way, I'm gonna be gone for the next month. Like I'm filming. <laughs> here in LA but I'm gonna be gone every scene like enjoy homeschooling yeah I was like have fun um and then I think it was Saturday I met Peter the director and I met Louis Lewis 
um, who plays Dr. Helen Bach, we all met for coffee. Mm. And then I just took the two days and just broke down the script. And I said, give me the days in and days out. I was like, because I need to know exactly what we're doing. So I prepped just one week at a time. Because again, we're filming over a month long period. I was like, so I just did weeks at a time. And I was like, what do I need to focus on right now? What am I filming first, second, third, fourth? And, um, and then I just dove right in. And, um, you know, Lucas and Peter and the rest of the cast, they had all had the script for a while and they all really knew it like the back of their hand. And I, I've read the script many, many times just to really digest everything about Sharon and like try to squeeze as much as I could from it, you know, but again, I didn't have a, a huge amount of time. So I really drew on a lot of personal experience. Um, as an actor, I've had some health issues. So in the past. And so I kind of drew on some of, you know, my experience being in the hospital with IVs and blood transfusions and things like that to really bring like forward all of, you know, that emotion and that life that I wanted her to have. And also because I'm a new mom, I, I could really draw on that experience of yeah. wanting to get back to my kid, wanting to get back to my family. And I don't think if I don't think if I would have played this role a few years ago, I would have had that, that, that depth that I brought or I, I hope I did. And oh, so, um, yeah, so it was such a, it was such a whirlwind experience for me, honestly, it was super crazy, but, um, and it was long days, you know, we filmed like 12, 13 hours a day and I'm in almost every scene. And so it was very grueling. It was really long, but, um, it was a super great experience. And I ended up becoming really great friends with the director, Peter. I'm actually helping him produce another movie right now. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's just cool. It's just cool. So oh, we're going to have to talk about the production side of it in a minute, but uh, what I really loved about it as well is it did have these kind of nice jump scares and a few like nice little bits of gore, but it is one of these rare films these days, which really goes into the psychological element of it. So you've already mentioned you kind of like you go under in an operation and then you wake up and you're just separate from your family. And you've got these other people who, you know, somehow are separated from those they love and they're just imprisoned in this place. Mm -hmm. uh, for you, kind of like, uh, do you often get scripts which go into this kind of more psychological angle? Because I thought that was really special in this film. It, it is really special. And no, I don't, I don't get it. You know, you don't, I don't get to play roles like Sharon very often. And especially, especially how much vulnerability she had, but then how much of a fighter she was, um, mm. you know, how much she just, at one point I actually made a joke where I was like, she won't stop wandering these hallways. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, she just won't give up, you know, like anybody else. I was like, I kind of re was reflective. I was like, would I give up at certain point and just be like, okay, this is my fate. I'm just going to deal with it. You know, I was like, she's like, absolutely not. I'm going to keep going. Like I'm, I'm not staying here. You know, she was such a fighter. And so, no, I don't, I don't get to play the cycle. And, and especially this is also what's interesting too, is um, the script that we shot, the working script did not have the scenes that are with um, Costas, the detective. So the scene where I'm, you know, getting questioned, that flashback scene, the flashback in the church, those things were added later because after we finished the movie, Peter did a rough cut 
and then he sent it, you know, to all of us to kind of look at. And again, you should never watch your work when it's in such rough form. You're like, oh my God. Um, but the, the big note that we all gave back, including me, is I was like, you don't care about her. There's nothing, you don't really care if she gets out. There's no redeeming quality of her. She just did this like horrible thing, you know, even though it was her situation with Nico. And then you know it's like she you need more backstory and so then peter we did another six days of shooting to get all of that stuff which now looking at the film i'm like if we wouldn't have had if we wouldn't have done that you know most of the film would have just been it would have all just stayed right in the facility the pacing would have been totally off it would have been such a different movie and so it's interesting how you can film a movie and then you can you know see where the holes are and then we got to fill them in and it was really it was really really cool and so it was such just a a really cool experience also to play a character like Sharon because she's introduced one way and you see she's this like loving caring mom and you know she's just like an average woman basically and then you see how much is underneath all of that and then you start and that's in the facility is where you really start to see all of those layers stripped away. And you're like, oh, well, that fighter lives in her still because that's a huge part of her past. And how many of us have that? Like how you were different, you know, at 15, 25, you know, 30 yeah. and all of these things. And it's like how, you know, we all have gone through these different stages in our life and how they've shaped us and given us these underneath layers to draw upon. But yeah, so it was it was really cool to be able to play a character like her and just it's one of those juicy roles that don't come about a lot and so i was you know of course i jumped at it of course when lucas was like you up and i'm like yeah <laughs> you know i've got to say very kind of you to have stopped at 30 and not you know uh, gone up <laughs> very kind i can never tell how old people are i'm like no, I, I will go with that 30 is good that's fine that's fine um <laughs> but uh, one thing also is the fact that I think the the fact that it kind of answers your questions as it goes along as well, because like there's certain moments where I kind of I like them when films kind of trick me like this, when I'm going, well, that's ridiculous, and then it kind of answers you. So you were talking about wandering the halls. I'm going, security's a bit crap in this place, isn't it? Yeah. But then yeah. later on you discover why security isn't so much of an issue. So it's like I, I kind of love that kind of thing as well. Yeah. Um yeah, could you just talk to us about the kind of cleverness of the plotting of this? Because I think that's very key to this as well. Yeah, and I will tell you one thing that's very, very cool about how we shot this movie is, um, so Peter, the director, he, you know, he was the EP on the whole thing as well. He rented out this warehouse in downtown Los Angeles, and he built the he built that whole set from the ground up. So it's 100% custom, and then he tore it down the day we finished, <laughs> you know, it was like done. Um, <laughs> And so it's just one really long hallway. And then on one side, there were like four or five rooms. And then on the other side, there was doors that led to basically a backstage where we kept camera equipment, hair and makeup. That's where we hung out, you know, crafty. And then there was a door at the end of the hallway. That door at the end of the hallway, we literally had to change like five or six times to look like my room to look like the main lobby to look like the exit like that's all the same door but just tricked out a million different ways and so 
and every time I'm walking down a new, I'm walking down a new hallway constantly, um, they just make it a different number at the end. And then we just make it look different. You know, numbers on the doors were changed. So our department had a very, very, very big job to do. They were very, you know, it, our department sometimes sets the room and then like walks away. They would like set the room and then come back and redo the whole thing and then come back and redo the whole thing because every single scene was like needed to be a different hallway where I'm turning corners, turning corners, turning corners. So it was uh, it was really cool to film like that. And as far as the plot of the movie, you know, when I read the script the first time, I didn't see the ending coming. And I know some people have reviewed it and been like, I saw it coming right away. And I was like, well, you're smarter than I am. <laughs> but I didn't see it coming because I was like, oh, like, I guess I just kind of was like, yeah, what is this? There, It's some sort of like medical experiment, the serum. I didn't, I was like trying to figure that part out when I was watching it. I was like, oh, that's so cool. Like it's, it heals them quickly. Like what yeah. is this like is it something with the government is it something deeper than that like what 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 is this you know it's a weird alien shit i don't know yeah because that's what it felt like kind of to, yeah. to, to get, i i kind of felt like i discovered it as sharon did in the film actually that's yeah. that's the experience i had of it i'm sure there's more clever people than me that figure it out but uh to me it was kind of more felt like uh like yeah when when we were going through those stages if you realized that there's a serum which gets introduced fairly early on, so I don't think I'm giving any spoilers then. Yeah, and it yeah. seems to kind of heal people. That's kind of something we get fairly early on. And when you realize that's a device to just eternally torture someone, like just throughout, just heal them to torture them, yeah, that is such a wonderful kind of horror premise. And then you get the twist on top of it. So it's already kind of got this really nice premise. And then you get this kind of extra layer as a little bonus at the end. Yeah. Lovely. I just thought it was super I thought it was super original and I thought Peter did a great job with, you know, and Matt who wrote it. I was like, wow, you guys did a really cool twist. Like you really flipped it on his head. I was like, and then, you know, with the doctor. And then when you learn, you know, that whole scene where you learn like, oh, the whole, there's no escaping this. You end up having to torture. Like you have to, you have to do this or you get tortured and the doctors torture each other. Like there is, it's a self-perpetuating system that you're just in. And I was like, this is super cool. <laughs> like, this is such a cool idea. Like, I thought it was really, really interesting. And I was, I was, uh, I was happy we could pull it off, you know, and that it did leave some audience members along the way guessing or thought they knew what it was about. And then they get, you know, that twist at the end where they're like, oh shit. And then you go back and think about certain things and you're like, oh, damn, it was right there in front of me, like the entire yeah. time. And that's the thing. It's just right there in front of you if you really take the time to see it. And like we said, there's some people who are like, I knew it from the opening, you know, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, you never know the, those people are telling the truth. There's always going to be some people who figure it out, but yeah 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 yeah. i think some of those just like to know like to say they knew it <laughs> yeah or i'm like okay cool good for you well don't spoil for the people who didn't because i did not see that when i read it i did not see that at the you know i read it like a book like i just read it like a novel when i was reading the script just enjoying every juicy part and uh and i didn't see that coming and so i thought it was i thought it was really cool i thought it was a really cool plot twist and um there's a i mean because they have a couple twists in there and i I really do think yeah. it, it it's cool. It was a cool little, you know, you know, and it tied it together in a bow pretty nicely. I mean, of course, you know, we wish we would have more time, you know, 
of course, we wish you had more money for special effects and all the things at the end. There's all these yeah. things. It's an independent film, but you know, for what it could be and with the budget it was, I think I think it served it served its purpose. I mean, you know, I um, I will say this certainly. I I think there's so many. Uh, we get quite a few people in the show who are independent filmmakers or actors in independent film, and there's a lot of the films which I really enjoy. But like, I think it's like, oh, if they'd had a bit more money or if they'd kind of uh, had a bit more time to kind of work on the script a bit more, it would have been even better. This really does feel like just a completely fully, fully, fully formed film, which I'm not saying independent film isn't always, but well, yeah. it isn't always, <laughs> but like this one really felt like, Oh, well, thank I, I feel you. like more money might have ruined it. If, if anything, I honestly think that there's, there's some films you don't want extra money. Yeah. In, just yeah. then become something else altogether the director will really appreciate that because you know he's you know sometimes he can he, they can be sensitive souls about certain things and you know yeah you know you always wish you had more time more money more that to be truthful like to do that hanging and which we're not giving anything i get hung in the mood uh to do that you know we ended they they hung me like six times which is a lot for like an indie and that was six different occasions that they had to do that and um because Peter was never completely satisfied with it. And then he ended up using the first take we did because just because the energy, everything was there. It was just like on the set. It was like da 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 da, you know? And uh and but you know, so sometimes you it can ruin it if you do have more time and more money because you'll just keep if you have if you struck gold one time, just don't try to redo it again. Just be happy with it and move on. But sometimes you're like, Oh, well, we have the time, so let's just keep going. And then you end up being like, ah. We didn't need to do that over and over again. We got it, you know. But yeah, it was a. I think we're all really happy with it. The whole cast and crew, like we're all just again because it was such a labor of love, and so many people worked so hard on it, and so much. I mean, we all became such great friends. Like we are just so excited that it came out because as any independent film, you just hope it comes to the light of day. <laughs> you know, you're like, yeah. I hope people watch it and see it and it resonates with people and it entertains them for a bit and um so we just get very we're, we're happy you know and it's available now to stream on vod and uh, dvd yes VOD. yep uh yeah. one thing i did want to ask so like whether it's human centipede or whether it's antidote or the other kind of horrors you've been in do you ever find kind of it's hard to shake it off because there's some kind of quite horrific theme in antidote alone yeah um, the human centipede was hard to shake off that the second one, especially was very hard to shake off. Yeah. We didn't um, even really talk about that. The second one was the second movie was so gruesome. It was so disgusting. It was so awful. Um, filming that was like, I could, I could still probably have nightmares if I let myself go there. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was just so insane filming that movie. Um, so gruesome, but yeah, there is something, you know, I think for me, because I don't, I don't, I haven't played the, the, like, Louis character, the doctor who's, or any of the doctors, you know, in our movie, mm. who are doing the horrible, horrific things to other people, you know, that man, man versus man, I'm always the one getting the things done to me. So there are times when it's like emotionally hard to shake off because you've gone to such like a deep 
part of yourself, like you're losing your life, you're losing everything, like this is what your fate is, that it can sometimes be hard to shake off, but it doesn't take me that long. Now, I do do think, you know, if you're a method actor and you go really, really deep and it would be harder to shake off, you know, playing the the villain in those instances where you're hurting other people. Like that's where it, I, I've only had to hurt people in like lifetime movies and I always, and there's no blood in those. But Ironically. I'm, yeah, <laughs> there's no blood, but I'm, you know, I've had to like run people over and stab them and shoot them. And I've done some really horrific things in lifetime movies, but again, you don't see any of that, but I'm always like, Oh, that's so fucked up. <laughs> you know, like, because yeah. it's so different from me. So I could see how it would be very, very hard for, you know, to come down, like you need to have like a decompression from doing a role like that. So for this role, it wasn't, it wasn't super hard to come out of anything that I did again, cause we were moving so quickly and I just had to move on to the next thing. But um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you've actually brought something else back to my mind. It's like, I think one of the most chilling scenes for me was you've got this scene just in the office when you and the doctor are talking. Mm -hmm. And it's just so nice. It's so pleasant. It's so like, you can tell for a second his humanity comes back in just that conversation. I think the awful thing about it is, is like that uh, he's still a feeling human being who's doing these awful things as everyone else there is. And yeah. I think that was that was what got to me the most. It's like... It's not a monster doing this. It's a human doing this. It's a human yeah. to do this over and again. And he has to do it. Like, there's yes. no choice. Like, you have to. And, like, when I say in it, but what if you don't want to? It's like, that's not the choice. Like, then you get tortured even more. And it's like, oh, my God. Like, to imagine being in that situation where it's like, but I don't want to do those things, whatever it is. And then, but no, you have to keep doing them. That's just how it works down here. And yeah it's ugh, it's just so awful to think about like what if that was what it was like can you imagine if that was our eternity like oh my god <laughs> how do you think you would do if you were stuck in Sharon's shoes oh my god I would just I, you know I've thought about that a million times I've been like because even on set I was like what if how how would I react in this situation and I'm like I don't know. I just don't know. I want to say I would fight as hard as she did. And I want to say I would keep going. But if you just know you're never going to get out, do you just succumb to the fate or just like, whatever, you're just going to be a robot at this point. And, you know, yeah, sure. Let me cut out the guy's tongue again, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. type thing. and that scene actually in particular was very, very, very intense to film. I was there, but, um, the guy who is the doctor who does it, he was an extra. So he got called, said, hey, you want to come be an extra in this, you know, uh, thriller? You're going to be playing a doctor. All of the doctors had no idea that they were going to be like such featured extras. They're not just like walking in the background. We're like, no, no, no. You have to like touch the actors and torture them. And they're like, what? You know? So the guy, Evan, who um, did that, had to be the one to pull it out. He was like sweating bullets because, you know, Ravi's like, you know, strapped down and Ravi's the actor. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. Come on. And he has this, like contraption opening his mouth and the light and all that stuff. And Evan's holding this tool with like, I guess I thought it was a calf's tongue, but I guess it's a lamb's tongue. And he's like holding it like this. 
this gives nothing away because we've already this is it was in the trailer but there he's like holding it like this and he's shaking evan's hand is just he's shaking because he's like oh my god i have to like put it in his mouth and then really close to his actual tongue and then like pull it out and like has to be quick and uh, it's so technical and all these things and there's like blood dripping and all just so technical again he just came to work to be an extra so he was like <laughs> what you know and i'm like this is where they need to get credit in the film this is where like all these guys need an actual like name credit like to be you know they're doing a lot more than just they're not just background and evan was like shaking and peter was like you do it every day to him don't shake like you're so it was like he had to build a character moment where it was like he had to then i i torture this i i cut this guy's tongue out every single day this is just my job done you know and so you know our doctors had a really intense job to do on set because it's like you can't have any emotion you can't have any feeling like you literally just do this every single day don't have any sort of like yeah this is just like clocking in nine to five you know and evan was just like oh my god but peter was like don't shake you can't not shake your hand cannot shake when you do it he's like can't do it and evan was like okay and then they got it and it was great but he came off set and he was like sweating bullets and i was like wow sorry (laughs) like you didn't know that was going to be your job today (laughs) we brought him back many many more days but yeah it was uh because i was like let's keep using the same doctors you know I didn't so. check the credits. Did he at least get a credit as like tongue pulling doctor? No, he got a name. I oh, got a name, even better. Yeah, yeah. No, I made sure I was because I ended up becoming a producer on this movie as well. And I was like, you know, right. when we were on set, and I was like, they should all get credited as doctor something. You know, like even if it's their own last name. I was like, because they are playing, even though they don't have lines and dialogue, they're playing a very prominent role in these in in this yeah. movie. Like the doctors are just like the set is its own character. Like those doctors are care are very specific characters who, you know, those actors had to bring a lot to that type, that work, you know, and they, they didn't know they were coming to work to, to like saw somebody's leg off, you know? And again, don't be nervous while you do it. And they're like, okay, <laughs> like I'm touching tools and the main actor, this is crazy. You know, that's not a normal yeah. thing for an extra to do, so. Yeah. Uh, before we let you go, uh, like so, you mentioned producing on this movie, and you're working uh, with the director and producing uh, a future flick. So, uh, tell us how 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 is it stepping behind the camera and doing that behind the scenes stuff? It's so interesting because I a few like many many years ago, I had a really small production company, and I did a couple short films, and I did like music videos, and so I had a little bit of experience with, you know producing it's it's not my favorite thing to do like the paperwork part of it but the collaborative part of producing is super super fun and it's it's really fun to get to work on a project that i don't have to perform in that i can find the performers for it and get to have a say in that and so it's such a different avenue but i respect producers (laughs) so 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 much now that i've like dabbled in the producing side because to get a project off the ground and i know this as an actor it takes i am like one small piece of this huge puzzle and yes it's like my image forever but so many components have to be put into place and so many of the right players have to come and make a project and so 
as I'm helping produce more projects, I'm learning along the way, like, wow, you know, actors do have an important role, but so does everybody else on the set. You know, every single person does. Sound guy, everybody is so important. <laughs> and you have to just treat everyone, you know, with the same amount of and level of respect. And, you know, you'll get the best one, you'll get happy employees and you'll get really great product out of it. So it's really cool. And are we on the road to seeing an Ashley Yenny film? Oh, I don't know about that. There's a couple of people who've been like, are you ever going to direct? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Maybe one day we'll see. Um, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see how the cards, you know, land. But as of right now, I'm just still acting. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a couple more movies coming out this year. They're TV movies. And then I'm getting ready to go shoot a paranormal thriller in Pennsylvania over the summer. And that'll be really cool because I haven't done a paranormal film before. I've only done, you know, that man versus man. So it's going to be really cool to do the, the, ooh, you know, ghosty stuff. So I'm super excited. <laughs> well, we can't wait to see that one. I've got to say, look, um, I, this show I've been doing for just over a year, did another podcast before it. And through that, I've had the opportunity of uh, interviewing uh, Oscar-winning directors, writers, Oscar-winning writers, uh, people from my childhood who I love, uh, big screen um, presences. But to actually talk to someone who was part of something, which again, I would say it, <laughs> which literally shocked everyone in an age where people can't be shocked, is amazing. I really love this new film. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Oh, thank you so much. It was really lovely to chat and yeah. Just, you know, if I ever can come on again, I can't wait to talk again about more things. <laughs> Please do. Uh, just very quickly, because this came up in chat and I've got a plug too. So uh, David McCrann has asked, where can he watch previous episodes of Dr. Squee? Well, you can catch audio episodes, as uh, Paul has so rightly said, and the Electronic Media Collective or DrSquee.com. And you can catch our videos at the Dr. Squee face Facebook YouTube and Twitch. I think I've covered everything there, but please do check it out. Please do check out, uh, I have got a lot of caption for this as well. Check out Antidote, which is available now streaming on VOD and DVD right now. It's really a great flick. Uh, and by the way, hour and a half, the perfect length for horror or comedy. So just- Yes, it is. Then that's that. not too long. You don't want it to that's drag exactly. on. <laughs> yeah. Shouldn't be short on that. Shouldn't be long that. Hour and a half. Yeah. That's what horror comedy should be. Gone. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've been Doug Squee. Joining me tonight has been... Ashlyn Yenny. Okay, not so fast, me, of a couple of days ago. We've got more show to come still. We have got uh, Simon from the Eurovision show joining us in just a bit, but let's listen to some tracks after that wonderful interview by Ashleen Yenny. Uh, what wonderful stories, and geez, like anyone who puts down the human centipede. Uh, look, again, I'm not expecting it to be for everyone, but you've got to respect like uh, all the work which went into it, how much it changed um, what it meant to do something shocking in cinema. If that ain't an expression of art, I don't know what is. And Ashley was just such a wonderful person to speak to. But anyway, look, I digress. Let's get back to tonight's show. So we've got coming up that interview with Simon from the Eurovision show. Before we get to that, 
Let's listen to a couple of tracks, and I'm going to head back to my alternative days in the early 2000s when I was going down to a local rock club, the Nexus and the Dungeon, um, two wonderful places which are much missed. So let's listen to some Incubus, and pardon me, but before that, this is Feel Good by Head P.E. Enjoy. Turn it up to 11, guys. Ain't no more sunshine, just rain and cold suffering. Generation born to die with their eyes wide open. The clock strikes, the wrong rights, the mob rules. The second Armageddon igniting the lit fuse. No turning back, every soldier is on point, ready to die. The confrontation coming, ready or not. It's on again, it's time to say your prayers again. It's not the end, just the beginning of the end. Okay, uh, with the sound of uh, cheesy Euro pop in the air and uh, with them bringing Graham Norton out of mothballs, it can only mean one thing. It's time for Eurovision. And as opposed to me trying to kind of bluff my way through, I thought I'd bring on an expert. And luckily, here at The Bear, we've got our own built-in show for Eurovision, which we can highly recommend. But I'm going to have a chat to the host of it right now. Please welcome Simon to the show. Uh, Simon, I was going to call you Simon Eurovision. I'm pretty sure that's not your surname. I've been called a few things, but no, it's not. It's Simon Harding. Thank you, Squee. Uh, People keep calling me expert. You know, I've never claimed to be an expert. I'm a fan. I know a few things. <laughs> You're already ahead of me, sir. That's all I'm going to say. So, man, look, I mean, the busy time of the year for you. How's it going? It's very busy. Yeah, incredibly busy. It's been a long time coming. Two years. It's the first time there's uh, there's not been one since since it started. So it's been a very long wait. And how how did you get kind of, how did the love affair with you and Eurovision start? Well, you kind of touched on it there, didn't you? I mean, it used to be it used to be very cheesy. It used to be very, very kitsch. And um, I suppose it was probably late 70s, early 80s that I sort of became attracted to it. It was on the TV. It was on there on a Saturday night. And uh, it just looked amazing. It was, it was nothing like it. And um, it was quite fascinating as well, the way so many countries were all taking this this live streamed TV show. And of course, this is before... You know, satellites were really, you know, commonplace. We didn't have our Netflix. We didn't have our Sky. So we were sitting there in our 70s and 80s living rooms watching the Beeb. And, and this show from Europe you know, being piped somehow miraculously uh, around the world was, was on our screen. So it was, it was fantastic from a technical point of view and from just the way it looked, the spectacle. Um, although I will take issue with with the notion that it's still cheesy, it's come a long way since those days. It's it's got its own brand of eccentricity. I think, like you know, I do love the acts which come on. They're going it's like right. We're, we're going to get back to the cheesy past of Eurovision and really kind of just sell the camp. I kind of mind the fact that there's no there's no Eurovision filter. Let's just say that. There isn't a filter, no. You do get all sorts uh, still these days. But the, the production values and the, the, the quality of songs now is... Uh, do you know, I was speaking to someone on, on, on the radio the other day and they, they took issue with Eurovision because it was sounding too good. 
They thought the songs were too good. They wanted some of the of the of the songs from the past, some of the problems, some of the mistakes, some of the more of the cheese, I suppose. So it just goes to show these days it's very slick. It's very highly produced. There's lots of, uh, of stage effects, pyrotechnics, screens, all sorts of gimmicks that make it uh, a spectacle, really. Yeah. And like, how do you, when was the decision made by you? Like, right, not only do I love this, I'm going to do a radio show about it. That's how much I love my Eurovision. Because, as I say, there is so much good music. Now, a lot of this music um, is widely played around the world, but perhaps not so much in the UK. The UK have have had a funny relationship with Eurovision, let's face it. I don't want to get political, but, you know, in the same way as we've had a dubious relationship with Europe, we have had a dubious relationship with Eurovision. And uh, there is there is still this perception that Eurovision is, you know, hey, nonny, nonny, no, and la, 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 and bing, bang, a bong, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, 30, 40 years in the past. So uh, I wanted to uh, highlight and showcase the fact that there are so many great songs from people either that have their careers launched through Eurovision or that are already established artists around Europe or in Scandinavia or whatever. And they are bringing out some really great songs. So that is why I thought, well, listen, there's all this material. Why should we consign Eurovision to one week a year? Let's give people an hour every week. Uh, So that's what we do. And tell us a bit about the show and how you kind of like structure it together. Uh, Well, it's a case of... uh, fine-tuning the, the the music so obviously there's a massive catalogue of, of songs uh there's, there's, you know there are thousands of eurovision songs from history um but we need to obviously narrow it down a bit so th- they are cherry-picked to some extent well obviously we don't play the really really bad songs uh because that just wouldn't make sense um and unless someone really really wants to hear it in which case we might make an exception um the music is also predominantly the last 20 to 30 years but we sort of slot in the odd uh, classic or vintage if you if you see what i mean um but also it's about uh, talking about news in eurovision land because obviously the build-up to eurovision takes months and months and months so we're talking about the next contest from june really onwards um artists that are involved in eurovision they are releasing music all the time so we highlight uh, new songs that are being released by those artists sometimes they come on the show as well and have a chat we've had some great uh, people on the show like katrina from katrina and the waves james wow. newman's been on the show uh, dami im from australia um, Eldar, who was one of the uh, the duo for, from Azerbaijan that won uh, some years ago, Ellen and Nikki. Uh, so they come on, we talk, and we talk about their new music and also their, their Eurovision uh, their past memories. Um, and also we have some musical features. So, for instance, uh, National Triple Play. We'll pick a country and say, well, let's just play you three songs from their back catalogue. So you might get a, an 80s and a 2000s and a 2010 song from Poland. Or, or whatever um and uh, we'll we'll do musical features like you know winners or songs that didn't win that maybe should have done also we can make a meal of it and we do every week uh, yeah like come on you you put out the question there now which, which is the one which you think is kind of the outstanding one which didn't win that should have done uh Dami Im, definitely the australian uh song from Dami Im, 2016 uh, sound of silence it was an incredible song and uh, there are lots of fan polls um from from a uh, time you know fr- from from well, 
they happen all the time, these fan polls or fan club polls. And that song is one of the ones that always ranks towards the top. It was it was a very close run competition that year. And I think she was leading for quite a long time and everyone thought she was going to win. Uh, but Jamala from the Ukraine just pipped her at the end. So that song, if you've, if you've not heard it, check it out. It is amazing. It will blow your socks off. Dami Im, The Sound of Silence. That's always one of my go-to songs. Love it. And how do you feel about like Australia entering the contest? I mean, is this controversial to you? Not really, no. I mean, people do say, well, what are, why are Australia and Eurovision? They're about as far from Europe as you can get. Um, and the answer is that um, any country can be in Eurovision. They have to basically be a member of the European Broadcasting Union. So uh, the national broadcaster of a country pays to be a member of the EBU, and that gives them automatic rights to be in the contest. This is why Israel are in Eurovision, but they're not in Europe. Um, Morocco once entered, only once, which was enough for them. Um, so any country can, can be in Eurovision if they're a member of the EBU. But also, the reason why Australia were invited, they were inv invited in 2015 as a one-off to celebrate um, an anniversary of the contest. Also because it is a huge deal in Australia. They cannot get enough of it. I mean, why? I'm not sure. They, they, they see it as strange quirky, different. Um, when Dami Im was on the show, she said that Australian uh, listeners can be quite conservative. Uh, they can be quite, you know, like their music to be quite blokey, quite macho. So Eurovision is as far from that as you could possibly get. So as something really different, it kind of, you know, made people's eyes open. Oh, what's this? Uh, and it's just massive. It's a huge thing down there. So they've been covering it for many, many years. They were invited in, as I say, as a one-off, um, and it proved so popular that they say, well, tell you what, why don't you come back next year and, and just keep coming back? So they do. And for you, like with the UK entries, we we do have a kind of slightly, how do I put this, patchy history with winning the kind of contest, especially in recent years. Yeah. Where do you think uh, we go wrong? To me, like, it seems like they're always kind of trying to replicate something of Eurovision as opposed to, like, you know, it, it gets back to something you said before, as opposed to doing something new and bold. What, yeah, what are your feelings? I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of become a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, really, unfortunately, with the UK. I mean, we, the UK have won it five times. Um, <laughs> the most wins for any country was Ireland with seven. So we're, we've actually done very well, if you look at the, the grand history of it, five times. And we've actually come second a record-breaking 15 times, many more than any other. I know, second. But, you know, we'll take second these days. We'll take top 10 these yeah, days. Yeah, yeah, we'll take nice. top 15 these days. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's, it's, become, it's become difficult. Now, there's a number of reasons behind this. Now, first of all, people automatically think, oh, the UK, they, they don't do very well at Eurovision. We're rubbish. They hate us, and we're never going to do But we're not the only ones. I mean, Ireland won it three times in a row in the 90s, but they haven't won it since. France haven't won it for a long time. Germany haven't. Lots of countries that were part of the original club, if you like, are struggling now. Why? Because there are so many countries. So many countries are involved. That means a larger choice. That means a more varied selection of, uh, of styles as well. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that, yes, there are, uh, there are voting patterns. There are cultural voting patterns. Political, maybe slightly, yes. I mean, you'd be 
probably be lying to say that politics had nothing to do with it. But it's a, it's only a small part of it. Uh, culturally, for instance, um, Balkan countries vote for each other because of the song styles. There's a, there's a certain style of music that is popular in the Balkans. Uh, similarly, Scandinavian, Scandi pop. So there are cultural leanings uh, which affect voting. Uh, there's the number of countries. But also, over recent years, it has to be said that the BBC haven't put the effort into song selection and song submission. Yeah. We've had some very dubious entries, not naming names. But uh, in the grand scheme of things, we haven't done well because we haven't sent good enough songs. That's really what it boils down to. I mean, look, you know, I, I, d I actually didn't mind Enkelbert's Humperdinck's entry. However, if we're going to go for Eurovision, I, th I don't think it was kind of big enough a choice for what we were doing. Yeah, um, not the right audience. Let's just say that. Just, not yeah, right just to pick one like a random. I'm not, not having to go, yeah. go with the mighty Humperdinck, but just, yeah. just to pull one. Because of this, because this sort of pattern has been going on and rolling on now, there's also a perception because, of course, it's not not the British public per se that chooses the songs. I mean, obviously, if there's a if there's a selection show, we have to pick one from three or four or five. Then yes, it's it's down to us. But um, you're limited by that selection. And in in recent years, obviously, the BBC have been picking a song, an internal selection. But there is this perception now that we don't care that we don't want to win, but it's just a big laugh. Uh, and so that, that feeds into some of the public voting. And remember, with Eurovision, you've got jury votes and public votes, which can be very different. Um, so the jury votes, uh, which are, are, are totted up first. Now, these are the music professionals. I'm using that in quotes, music professionals, um, that, that look at the song and they look at the, um, the artistry, they look at the, the technical aspects of the song and, and score it. Then you have the public vote, the telly vote, which they add on at the end, which can be completely different. You know, you can have a song which the professionals think is dreadful, but the public think is wonderful. Uh, and that makes a big difference then when those votes are added in. So um, there is this perception with the with public in other countries that we don't really take it that seriously. And that's a shame. And it does kind of tarnish um, our, uh, our enthusiasm. Now, James Newman is very passionate about Eurovision. He's really pushed the boundaries and uh, he was very vocal about wanting to get a chance to go back this year after losing out last year mm. with the cancellation. So, and it's a good song. And last year's was a good song. They, they, are, they are very well-crafted songs. However, you do need something in addition to a good song. You need a song that stands out, especially when there's 39. That's the problem. And do you feel like this year's entry stands out? No. It's good. <laughs> it is good. And I mean, it, it deserves to be on the left-hand side of the scoreboard, which is what we say when we want the song to do well and be in the, the top half of the, of the, of the scoreboard, uh, which is something which we've forgotten where it lives over the last few years. Yeah. We've been rooted to the bottom. Um, we, so we've been sort of a bit busy doing other things with Europe, which you know, may or yeah, may well, not have gone down well. Yeah, there's got to be a connection to some degree. But as I say, it is a complicated, uh, it is a complicated thing. There are lots of factors involved. Um, the running order as well, where the song appears on the night is a factor. If it's early on, there are certain slots where it's gone, oh, do you know, we don't want that slot because you're just going to get forgotten about. Um, right. 
you know, the the semi-finals have um, something like uh, 15 or 16 songs, depending on, on how many countries are taking part. Only 10 go through to the final. And the final has 26 songs. 26 songs is a, a lot of songs. So if you're in the first few, by 26, you know, have gone by, you, you, you're forgotten. Especially since that most people are listening to those songs for the first time on the night. If you're a fan, you know them off by heart. You've watched the semi-finals, you, you know all about them. But if you're watching and you're just a casual viewer, it's the first time you're hearing that song. So it's got to catch you, it's got to, it's got to hit you, and you've got to remember it. So those are the key things. So songs in the first half of the night on the grand final, you know, are, are up against it, really, unless they're really, really special. And what are the ones which are sticking out for you this year? Uh, well, I mean, they are the front runners. Um, uh, Malta has been um, one of the bookies' favourites for a while. They have been uh, toppled from the top of the odds since the rehearsals started, which is interesting. Um, also, France are, are are up there as well. I think they're the current favourite. And the, the, the French song, I don't know whether you remember the song that won for Portugal in 2017, Salvador Sobral was very different it was very stripped back it was very classic it was very artistic um and this song is in that sort of vein it's very very french and it might just it might just repeat that kind of success that uh, portugal had switzerland also is a very um emotive hard-hitting song it's very very well crafted and that is tipped as well it's kind of open this year. There isn't really a front runner. Uh, in normally, most years, there is a song that, uh, that that the bookies get hold of and everybody focuses on, and it's the favourite all the way through. And, you know, eight or nine times out of ten, it wins. Not this year. So it could be an interesting, uh, an interesting selection. Okay, so Simon, uh, thank you very much for all that. In a minute, we're going to hear some Eurovision tunes. So for you, though, sir, what's your all-time Eurovision favourite? Oh, that's a question I just cannot answer. Um, I've mentioned. Okay, what one do you want to hear tonight? Let's go with that. Well, I would say let's let's uh, let's give Dami Im that uh, that that going, shall we? So the, the sound of silence, the uh, the Australian entry. That's the one that uh, I would say for for now at the moment. So we'll go with uh, sound of silence, Dami Im, and you Dami might have Im. to you might have to email me the spellings of that, but but that will be coming up in just a second. I'm kind of giving away that this is pre-recorded for the audience, but hey, uh, I don't like to lie to my audience anyway. Uh, and then for the other tune we're going to hear, now I'm going to give you a bit of an interesting choice. We can either hear the British entry for this year, or you can pick another country. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, I, well, I mean, I do like James's song, Embers. It's a good song. It's one of the best ones we've, we've put, put through in a while. Uh, but it's getting a lot of airplay, to be fair. So let's go with another one. And uh, let's go with one of the favourites, which I think is a good song too, and it could well be the one that wins uh, from Malta, but by Destiny. Okay, uh, this is uh, from from Destiny, or what, like, what's the name of the track? So, so Destiny is the artist, and the track right. is called Jumacas. It's sung is... in English, even though it's got a French sounding. It's Maltese entry with a French sounding name, but it's sung in English. Uh, Jumacas. It's kind. It's, it's an expression that means "I'm out of here." Okay, and we are out of here. Thank you very much for your time there, Simon. Uh, we're welcome. We're going to throw over now to The Sound of Silence, uh, followed by Jean Macas. Growing tired and weary, brown eyes. 
through FaceTime Symphonies are dreams and highlight cards This is Paul Gross, and you're listening to The Bear. Thank you kindly. Standing in line to see the show tonight, and there's a light on. Heavy glow. By the way, I tried to say I Standing in line to see the show. That was the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and by the way, on our first ever, I think, on the Dr. Squeeze Show, triple play here on the Bear.Live. So, um, well, and, and there aren't many a show which will segue between two Eurovision tracks and then Red Hot Chili Peppers. What more do you want, guys? And uh, we'd like to thank Simon Harding from the Eurovision show for talking to us. And uh, you can catch his show, the Eurovision show, every Saturday on the Live, 6pm till 7pm. And I'm guessing it'll be a bit of a special show for him this week uh, with the Eurovision. It's, it's uh, exciting times, guys. And thank you very much to my other guest, of course, Ashlyn Yinney, for uh, talking to us about her new film. You can catch it now on VOD and uh, on DVD and anywhere you please. <laughs> and that is Antidote. It's a great film. I really would recommend it. Thank you very much for listening. Remember, guys, in the world where you can be anything, please be kind. I'm Dr. Squee. That was my show. I'm not trying to win. I'm not doing this because I want to beat someone, because I hate someone, or because... Because I want to blame someone? It's not because it's fun. God knows it's not because it's easy. It's not even because it works, because it hardly ever does. I do what I do because it's right. Because it's decent. And above all, it's kind. It's just that. Just kind. Hey, you know, maybe there's no point in any of this at all. But it's the best I can do. Why not? Just at the end.